Okay, well, good morning, everyone. My name's Joel Gallant, and uh, this morning I'll be preaching from Psalm 73. And I promise it's going to be short and sweet. And for once, you can see my face and not have to sing along with my voice. So we're all blessed already. So uh, Becky's away in Manitoba this week, so I've been batching it. And yesterday morning, I had coffee and pepperoni sticks. So, hi, Becky in Manitoba. I hope I live to when you return. <laughs> so, uh, Psalm 73 is where we're reading from today. And so I'm going to read it, and then I'll pray, and we'll get down to it. So, Psalm 73, starting in verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had nearly stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death, and their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace, and violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness, and their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain, I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. God, we just ask this morning, God, that you open our mouths to hear. Open my mouth, God, to help me speak truth this morning. God, open our ears so we could hear it. God, open our hearts so we can truly change by your power and your grace. Amen. So, Psalm 73 is the first chapter of Psalms Book 2. And it was either written by David or Asaph. Book 2 stretches from 
73 to 83, and the authorship is more or less a toss-up. Could be David, could be Asaph, but I'm going to keep it simple and agree with every other person who's wrote big books and say, David probably wrote it, and Asaph, who was a leader in music at the time, probably sang it. When David wrote this psalm, he wasn't really the man that we read about elsewhere in the Old Testament. He wasn't having a superstar day fighting bears or lions or killing Goliath. But he wasn't spending his time getting Bathsheba pregnant and having her husband killed either. So not terrible, but not great. (laughs) He was having a pretty neutral day where he wasn't making any forward progress, but he wasn't really diving off the deep end. He was thinking a lot about what he saw in the world. He saw wickedness. And we read throughout the the chapter in verse 3, they were prosperous, healthy, rich, proud, violent, foolish, hateful, oppressive, irreverent, and flippant. He saw them mock God and laugh at his power and doubt his existence, saying in verse 11, how can God know? Is Is there knowledge in the Most High? It made him furious to see this, and to his dismay, He didn't witness God sending fire from heaven or famine or a plague or a storm. David was angry at the injustice of it all, even going so far as to say in verse 13, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. His soul became bitter towards God because in his heart, he wanted wicked actions to be punished and righteous people to be blessed. He wasn't seeing that though, and it hurt his heart. He felt cheated because he spent his life trying to live by God's law, and now it didn't seem to matter. Sin was tempting him, and this thought crept in. Why shouldn't I join them? No one tells them what to do or who to prefer. They have enough money to do whatever they want. They aren't troubled by morality or God's laws, and they say there's no God, yet they're not struck down with disease or sickness. Why do I even bother to keep God's law at all? What good does it do? Why do I pursue innocence and purity? Every day, it gets harder and harder to wake up and do what God wants me to do. And I don't think it's a stretch to say that at some point we all think the same thing as David, where life gets hard. People get what they don't deserve all the time, and a lot of the time we wrestle with whether or not to give in And it's a really tough fight. And most of the time, we don't say, forget this and do something crazy. Most of the time, we just kind of shift to neutral and we keep the doubts to ourselves because denying God and walking away from him means shaming us and the people we love. So we go to church and we sit down and we zone out. We keep singing the songs with faces and attitudes like the walking dead. And we go through the motions, get home, and ask, is this it? To live in this bubble of low expectations where we can't be disappointed by God because we expect little? Is that it? Maybe it seems like everything looks better apart from God, and you feel like in verse 14, David said, all day long you've been stricken and you're rebuked every morning. You feel like obeying God is too much work and not enough reward. You look at your paycheck and you dream of all the things you will never get to do, or you get out of the doctor's office after being told they don't have a cure for that yet, and it seems like God's promise of provision is for everybody but you. 
you get angry and you say, why, God? I pray, I worship, I go to church, I go to life group, I obey your word. Where is your goodness? Where are your plans for a hope and a future? In our bitterness, we become like brutes and we get angry with God like David did, like a beast, and we, ask, and we feel like we're losing control. So we fall into apathy and we start giving up things we once held on to. We stop preferring and serving our spouse in a Trinitarian reflection and start keeping score on who got their way last time. Instead of seeing church as an opportunity to invest in community and advance God's kingdom, we get resentful when we are asked to serve in the church because our lives are busy enough already. We choose to stay up late on the computer or sleep in and give up our quiet time with God where we used to fall headlong into his love. And we become selfish. And that could be the end of the song. A once vibrant faith is disabled by the desire to do it our way. But Satan's assault of empty promises and temptations is halted when we run into the house of the one who is mighty to save, seated in victory, reigning and ruling on his heavenly throne, holding all authority to satisfy our deepest desires and deliver us from temptation. When we run to Jesus Christ, he is willing and very able to pluck us from our inward-looking pity party and open our eyes to the fact that even though life might be full of trials and injustice, he has a plan for you that is greater than this world, a plan that sees us enjoying his presence both now on the earth and forever in heaven. As we read God's word, we can discover the end of the wicked. The end result of living apart from God is emptiness at the end of a life where we spend it doing things our way and preferring our own wisdom to God's. But in worship, the lights come on. By God's great grace, we can have eyes to see that though it might be tempting, living like this is not what we desire. Instead, we see that God, what God has for us is so much better and that sin's attraction is only an illusion seeming real enough at the time, but when we wake up and we compare it to God's glory, it's strangely dim. Sin is above all empty, and God is above all sufficient. In his moment of clarity, David declares there's no thing or no one greater than his father. In verse 25, he writes, Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is my strength and my portion forever. The reality is, when we trust in God completely, our circumstances might never change. You might never make enough money to buy a new car or a new truck or a new boat or a new house. You might never be healed from the disease that you pray about every day. You might never be recognized for your hard work, or you might never have an easy life. But our dependence must not be on money or health or ease or recognition because all of these things disappear. They're just treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. So since our circumstance may never change, our perspective on what will last must change instead. 
Couldn't you ask, though? Couldn't God, who's, you know, powerful, intervene and miraculously change everything? Of course he could. He's God, and it's in his power to intervene. But will you doubt his goodness or his power if he doesn't? Will you stop believing that he has the best for you because you don't have everything you've ever wanted on this earth? Our eyes must be fixed on what lasts. His promise to be with us lasts. His promise to always be our strength and give us wisdom lasts. His promise to comfort us when we mourn lasts. His promise to let us taste of his glory here on earth like we did this morning in worship lasts. And his promise to cover us in his love lasts. His promise to let us know his presence here on earth lasts. His promise to fill us with great love and certainty that we are part of his family lasts. And we don't have to be satisfied with only tasting God's glory here on earth, but we're guaranteed glory at the end of this age. Jesus' resurrection from the dead is like a first fruit. It's like a farmer who goes out into his field and sees the first crops he knows there's more to come. He sees the first one there. It's a guarantee of what's to come. It's like thunder or lightning is a guarantee of thunder. Jesus' re- resurrection precedes our own. His resurrection is a guarantee of our own resurrection to come. And we must not hold on to the vague notion of a bodiless heaven where we are like wispy spirit fairies enjoying heaven forever in some kind of disconnected way. We must hold on to what we read in 1 Corinthians 12 that we will have an imperishable, glorious, powerful spiritual body that bears the image of the man of heaven, Jesus Christ, with which we will enjoy and worship him together forever. Hallelujah. That's what David meant by having God as our portion and our strength. We don't hope in some kind of empty promise. We don't hope in some kind of thing to fail and, and waste away to dust at the end of this age. We hold on to the hope, to the eternal hope. And we can't be deceived into thinking that anything other than God could ever satisfy our deepest needs, though we do. If we think that staying up until 2 a.m. playing some more League of Legends or World of Warcraft or looking at porn, or thinking that a different spouse, or a different city, or a different car, or a different house, or a different anything could ever compare to his abundant sufficiency, we're mistaken. If you think it does, and you love God, then walk away from it today. Leave it behind. Ask God to be everything you need. Theologian John Calvin says this about calling God our portion. The reason why God is represented as a portion is because he alone is sufficient for us and because in him the perfection of our happiness consists. It follows then that we are called ungrateful if we turn away our minds from him and fix them on any other object. So maybe video games and porn aren't your thing. But when you think of your job, you lose more sleep every night 
and you doubt that God has a plan for you at all. When anxiety and insecurity and jealousy and cheap imitations of sex and love creep into our life, we have got to be careful to not make them gods. We have got to put them in their right place. We cannot accept a distortion of God's perfect gift for us. We can't accept porn as, a, as, as for what it is when God has sex set aside for us in a perfect condition. He has it set aside in parameters that protect us. God has security set aside for us in a way that we could never know from a job or from money or from recognition. These things just distract us. They take away from what God has meant to be perfect for us. And the psalm says it pretty clearly. In Psalm 16, it says, The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. But in your presence, O Lord, there are pleasures forever. When we turn to Jesus with our fears and failings, we can know that we know that we know that he will deliver us from temptation, from temptation and he will give us faith to believe his promises. So David is our example in relying on God's strength to change our perspective. He starts by admitting where he was at. David was the king of Israel, and he didn't think for a second, I wrote all these psalms, people know me as a righteous king, I can't appear weak, what would they think about me then? David knew what he had to do. He set aside all the ideas that he had about himself. And he laid the envy of the wicked on the table before God. And he dealt honestly with God. He forsook everything in the world and desperately put all of his hope in God. He gave up everything that was taking God's place, including his own wisdom and his own abilities, recognizing they're not even a shadow compared to God's wisdom and God, God's ability. And he put God in the place that he belongs and he ordered everything else below that. He cried out to God for strength to help him see what God saw. God answered by showing him that though there is an appearance of injustice in the world, if he looked with an internal perspective, both the wicked and the righteous receive their due. And we can look at David at the beginning and the end of the psalm as an indication of what's to come for us. At Psalm verse 1, 73 verse 1, David says this, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled and my steps had nearly slipped. It's as if he doesn't even own that promise. He says, it's good for Israel, and it's good for them, and it's good for everybody else who does everything else right, but me, I've got all this envy of the wicked over here, and that promise doesn't apply to me. He says, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, but as for me, my steps had nearly slipped. He disqualifies himself from God's promise, even though he's the king of Israel. But at the end of the psalm, after he's firm in his identity as one of God's chosen people, and as such, holding tightly to his promises, we read in verse 28, 
a parallel. But as for me, verse 1 it says, but as for me, verse 28, but as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Likewise for us, when we put our faith in Jesus to forgive our sins and we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we can identify as God's children. And the Holy Spirit affirms that in us. We can find strength in God's faithful promises knowing that he wrote them for us. And our how begins with Jesus. When our sins separate us from God, Jesus is the one who made a way for us by living a perfect life and becoming a sacrifice for us to God for us when he died on the cross. He exchanged everything that we had, all of our sin and all of our shame, and he took it away and he gave us eternal life as members of God's family. And what's more is now we have the Holy Spirit who, as we read in Romans 8.16, bears witness or testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. When we believe in Jesus, we are received into God's family and we become God's children. With this new identity comes a lot of inheritance. We are called God's chosen people. And every promise we read in the Bible is meant for God's chosen people, and so it's meant for us. Among them, God promised we would have power from on high to live life in obedience to him. And this promise is realized in the Holy Spirit. So practically, when we come before God, we just got to be honest. We got to lay out our issues. We got to verbalize it. We got to speak it out. Be specific. God already knows your heart. He's sovereign. (laughs) You're not hiding anything from him. And you can't scare him. His shoulders are broad to carry all of our doubts and our anger and our sadness and our confusion and our disbelief, and our hurt. Then we've got to put God in his rightful place. We've got to recognize that only he deserves the highest place in our life. Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit God, says, when we make a good thing, we put a good thing in a God place, it becomes an idol. He says, the human heart is like an idol factory. We've got to recognize that only God can occupy that top place in our life. We have to stop letting other things rule our life. We have to stop letting family, even though family's good, okay? That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we can't let it rule our life. Money can't let it rule our life or influence or sex or wisdom or ability or anything else. We can't let that rule our life when God has an eternal plan for us, and only he deserves to occupy the top space. So we lay it out, we reorder our lives, and we ask God to fill us with the Holy Spirit to empower us. He gave us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit that we're children of God. He empowers us. He clothes us with power from on high. The Holy Spirit is our counselor, And the Holy Spirit is our leader, and he's our comforter, and he reminds us of truth that we find in the word. And so when we ask to be filled with the Holy Spirit, we ask to be filled with the Holy Spirit, we read our Bible. 
and the Holy Spirit empowers us to know God's will. He, rem- he shows us it, illuminates it in the, bo- in the word for us, and he empowers us to do it. It means when we worship God and we're filled with the Spirit, we can experience the love that he has for us, and then we can show it to other people. It means when we pray, where we talk to God, we listen for when God speaks back to us. It means asking for faith and then taking a step in it. We trust in God's faithfulness and we choose to take him at his word. Lisa's word this morning. We don't understand it. We can, we can, try, and, we can try and figure it out by our own means, but we won't but we can lay aside all of our reason and we can lay aside all of our disbelief and we can lay it aside and we can choose to trust God. We can choose that, God, you say that you have called me. God, you have brought me into your family. You give me your Holy Spirit as a deposit, God, and these promises that you've laid out in your word, I believe them and they're for me. We have to choose to take him at his word. And we also play our part. I'm not advocating today for sit on your couch and pray for good things to happen and then watch it roll in, (laughs) okay? God's miraculous, and he can intervene in your life, and he can do anything. But probably what's going to happen is when you start praying for faith, he's going to start giving you circumstances to be faithful in. When you start praying to have more patience, Debbie Tompkins will tell you that's stupid. (laughs) Okay? But he's going to give you opportunities to be patient. When you ask to hear from God, he's going to give you opportunities to be prophetic. And what are we going to do? Are we going to wait around with our mouth open for God to move our lips to speak the words? Or are we going to take the step and believe that he'll meet us? We use the gifts that God's given us. So this morning, if you don't know God or Jesus or the Holy Spirit, we want to pray for you after. We want to pray that you would come to know God and come to know the fullness of his love. God has a life-changing plan for you, and he wants you to know that you're loved. He wants you to walk away from all the fleeting things on earth that are just dust, and find all that you need in him. And maybe you know God, but you've never been filled with his Holy Spirit. We'll pray for you today. And if you're a Christian, and you've been filled with the Holy Spirit before, we'll pray for you today too. (laughs) Okay? It's not a one-time event, being filled with the Spirit. It's a continual, daily experience. The Holy Spirit fills us with the assurance of God's love for us and pulls out the doubt that we have about it as well. God's desire is that you would know without a doubt that you are his and that not you or anyone or anything else can change that. The evidence for being filled with the Holy Spirit isn't speaking in tongues, though that may happen, okay? It's not laughing or crying uncontrollably, though that may happen as well, okay? These things are responses, however strange they look, to God's love for us. We find in 1 Peter 1 that the evidence for being filled with the Holy Spirit is that in your heart, 
you have an unshakable affirmation that you are now born into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So I'm going to ask Angela and the team to come on down. And uh, if this at all sticks out to you, if you find yourself in either one of those three places where if you don't know God, you've never been filled with the Holy Spirit, or you have, and you know all that, and you just want it again, we're going to make some space down here where we can pray for you. And so I encourage you that today, if any of these things hit you, if you think I'm putting all this stuff up here and I need to reorder my life, come and get prayed for, okay? We're not going to judge you. There's nothing like that. There's only mercy at the throne, okay?